welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when Mark and Lard made Monomore Tokyo by the Pizzicato 5 Record of the Week on the Radio 1 Breakfast Show. Perhaps a clue there as to why they didn't really catch on with Chris Evans' audience. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today for a second visit to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one else ever seems to, is writer and musician Gareth F. Hirons. Gareth, what are you up to and where can we find it? Well, and as I'm sure listeners will be well aware... They won't, so I'll tell them. I'm now doing a new podcast called Retrospecticus with my friend Tom Williamson, which is uh, The Simpsons and Modern History, Together at Last. Uh, and I'm also still uh, putting in the hours over at Atomic Salpus, cranking out articles about the history of Final Fantasy that up to and above nine people are reading. And which Pizzicato 5 record would you have chosen as record of the week on the Radio 1 Breakfast Show? Oh, Twiggy, Twiggy, without a doubt. <laughs> I, I, I re-watched the performance of that on The Word the other day and just remembered how mind-blowing that was for me as a 14-year-old. I'm going to say 14. It doesn't even bear describing that. Anyway, you mentioned Retrospective because your Simpsons podcast, which is quite handy because your first choice it's a bit of a shameless crossover tie-in, really. It's something that I'm aware of, but I don't think I've ever actually listened to. But anyway, here's a clip from it. Okay, well that's a song from The Simpsons I thought pretty much outstayed its welcome in the actual episode, but that's actually a full-length, fully recorded album version of it, which I'm assuming you've never heard. Gareth, where does it come from, and why won't people have heard it? Well, it comes from something called The Yellow Album, which was uh, The Simpsons' second album of original songs, after The Simpsons Sing the Blues. But as we're about to find out, it was released at completely the wrong time. Yeah, I mean, I've been looking up. The first thing that I remember hearing about this was, uh, we'll come back to The Simpsons Sing the Blues in a minute, unfortunately, but I remember, I mean, these are candidates for looks and familiar in themselves. Marvel UK tried to launch two magazines, I think, in the summer of 1995 was Bizarre, which is about cult movies, and there's Playback, which was going to be about cult TV. And had the sort of A to Z of cult TV in it, and S was The Simpsons, because we're trying to be modern and edgy, you know, it had the day-to-day in it, and a couple of other more recent things. But The Simpsons one mentioned that there was an album called The Yellow Album in the vaults, featuring the Prince parody My Name is Bart. And that was all I'd heard of it. And then years later, I actually saw it in the shops and thought, in fact, I didn't see it in a proper record shop even. I saw it in Probe Records, which is an independent local record shop. Do you know why? If it was, I'm guessing it was recorded pretty much shortly after The Simpsons Sing the Blues. So why did it take so long to come out? That's one thing I haven't necessarily been able to find out uh, as to why there was the gap, but there was the gap. So The Simpsons Sing the Blues, that was released in uh, December 1990. So that was at the start of the first wave of Simpsons Mania really we're talking kind of in the the middle of the second season i'm guessing and that spawned a uk number one single in do the bartman which was allegedly co-written and produced by michael jackson it blatantly was and the number something or other hit with deep deep trouble which to me that exemplifies the rest of that album exactly deep deep trouble was was better for me in fact i I just have to digress slightly to say look at all those idiots as sung by mr burns and smithers was actually my favorite from simpson single blues but this album was was recorded almost uh, immediately afterwards and you can tell from the the names that are sort of dropped in this it features uh prince 
well, allegedly features Prince. It's blatantly him. Linda Ronstadt, CNC Music Factory. But what really dates it for the Simpsons fan is that the ostensible lead track from it, which is Love, with a question mark, which is why I'm going love rather than love, is rapped by Bart Simpson, very much in the style of uh, Deep Deep Trouble, Do the Bart Man, that kind of thing. But it makes explicit reference to Milhouse's relationship with Samantha Stanky from season three. Samantha episode... Stanky. Exactly, exactly. Thank, thank you very much there, Seymour. Um, <laughs> which is the subject of season three, episode 23, Bart's Friend Falls in Love, which was broadcast on May the 7th, 1992. And this album was in fact meant to be released in 1993, when that would have been a reference that would have been contemporaneous for Simpsons fans. Why it wound up coming out on the 24th of November 1998 is anybody's guess. And there's a few things that this suffered from and a few reasons why I think it's kind of been forgotten in history. Number one is that it's not very good. Moving swiftly on, number two is that just one year previously, the album Songs in the Key of Springfield had been released. Now that was a set of better songs, all of which had appeared in the show itself. So you're getting things like your Stonecutter song, like uh, Monorail, all the classics. And this just isn't as good as that. In fact, I, Songs in the Key of Springfield might actually have had Cab Crusty on as well, which is the, the final track on the other album. And also released on the 24th of November 1998 was Chef Aid, the South Park spin-off album, on the very same day. And at that time, people don't believe you now, but South Park looked like it could kill The Simpsons. It was edgier, it was cooler you know, uh, sort of jaded Generation Xers were moving on to South Park, and it was around the time when The Simpsons was starting to be uh, sort of turned on by its own fans as not as good as it used to be. So it, everything about this this launch, from the timing to the, the context to the, the song selection itself, just screams, we're out of ideas. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that I remember struck me about it at the time was opinions may differ on this, but I think the Simpsons sing the blues, they kind of struggled to fill that with meaningful content. It was trying to be, trying to do do the Bartman 12 times, essentially, and that didn't really work because that's kind of a one single joke. I would compare it to around the same time. There was a similar album, which nobody remembers now, the Beavis and Butthead Experience. Oh, yeah. Where sensibly what they did was they got proper metal and grunge bands to do new songs for it. In fact, I think I Hate Myself and Want to Die by Nirvana was originally only on that, but they had the actual songs of Beavis and Butthead commenting on them at the start and the end, and then they had their cover of I Got You, Babe, and also Come to Butthead, which was one of the funniest comedy songs ever written. But that circumvented having to churn out an hour of comedy. It was just where it needed to be, and that was the sort of album that was needed or alternately something like as you say songs in the key of springfield which was just the fondly remembered songs off the screen i think it's canyonero on that or is that on the second one but it's definitely got the tito puente song about mr Burns. yes <laughs> yeah. yes so that was what people wanted and then they take a step back with the yellow album yeah uh, and the yellow album obviously is a, is a big beatles reference as well from the title to, to the cover which was a, a takeoff of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The whole thing is just, it's backwards looking. Mm. It looked non-modern, essentially. And I don't think that was a good look for The Simpsons at the time. But when I talk about backwards looking, of course, that brings me to Retrospecticus. <laughs> um, just because this is the kind of thing that I do. 24th of November 1998, <laughs> when, uh, when said album was released, uh, the nearest episode to that, two days previously, was uh, Season 10, Episode 7, Lisa Gets an A. That's an episode in which Lisa cheats on a test 
but her score elevates Springfield Elementary's average to the point where it qualifies for extra funding, so the whole school's trying to cover it up. It's the very definition of a meh episode, aside from the line, Super Nintendo Chalmers, uh, which comes from this. <laughs> but it does have one of the best-remembered B-plots of any episode, in which Homer buys a small lobster to fatten up for eating. And I also asked Tom... Hi, Tom. Tom Williamson, the cleverer of the two of us on Retrospecticus, for what he would do as his uh, historical uh, event. And he said, The start of the assembly of the International Space Station, with its first module, called Zaya, the functioning cargo block, providing initial power, storage and propulsion, being launched just four days before the album's release. And let's face it, it's been a lot more successful than the Yellow Album ever was. Do you think they could have, like, used the Yellow Album as ballast for one of the parts in the final album? It was suitable for. But it's interesting you say it's a play on the White Album because I think it's also given that there was... I can't work out whether this was actually on the album or not because some entries on Discog say it was and some don't, but... My name is Bart, being like my name is Prince, also indicates we're also thinking of the Black Album, the legendary unreleased Prince album. So make your mind up about what you're referencing. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. And and, and I've got the same problem as you. Certain sources say that My Name is Bart was variously on the album, presented as a (laughs) a bonus track, presented as a bonus track on promo, or not on the album. Jesus Christ, Internet, sort it out. (laughs) Okay, well, we're staying on the subject of bizarre discographical quirks. Eventually, you'll see what I mean when I don't think even is aware of what I'm going to bring into this. <laughs> anyway, here's a bit of music that you might recognise, but not in this form. Okay, with that lovely rendition of the start of Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, <laughs> it's from Gareth. It's from Frankie the Computer Game. adverts for this I think in about 1985 and they had this wonderful sort of airbrushed picture of Frankie Goes to Hollywood where weirdly Ped's head appeared to be completely at 90 degrees to his body so I did wonder if the point of the game was that he had to realign his neck or something but what actually happened in it? What I'm going to do is I'm going to say how this was described in the instruction booklet at the time and then I'm going to tell you what actually happened in the game and I want you to see if any of what is written down actually matches what occurs in the game. So, uh, here we go. Frankie have sent you over 60 tasks in your journey from Mundanesville through the Pleasure Dome. Tasks ranging from the trivial to heroic feats of skill and intelligence. Whenever you complete these challenges, a bar chart will show your increase in the various elements of your personality and pleasure points will be awarded. Your goal is to become a complete person and to achieve this, you must reach the top on the bar charts when the letters bang will appear above the personality factors and achieve a score of 99,000 pleasure points. This combination awards you the minimum requirement to search for the special door, the door to the ultimate experience, the heart of the pleasure dome. Okay, because that happened in all their songs, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, like all of them. Uh, Certainly relax, you know, (laughs) that's what that was all about. What it actually is, is you control a poorly animated figure that runs around the terraced streets of Liverpool occasionally falling into a fridge and playing a, playing a shooting minigame or possibly something where Reagan spits at Gorbachev. So until that bit, I was going to say so on the prom then, but we'll carry on. It did seem to be very uh, very spitting image um, sort of uh, influenced, actually, in terms of the uh, the art of world leaders that, that's in it. And there was also a murder mystery for no apparent reason. But yeah, so there's, there's 60 different things you can do in the game. You have to do them all and then find the door to the Pleasure Dome, and then something happens. I haven't been able to work out what this is. And I don't know whether that's because 
there is a rumour that, at least on the Spectrum version, there was a bug that makes the game completely uncompletable. Oh, well, there's a surprise. A bug in the Spectrum game, you say? Yeah, a, a bit like in, in Sherlock, where Watson repeatedly sits in the same chair as you. Could it be like that, or that place is too full for you to enter from the Hobbit? I, it could well be. I, I think we should just, just pause a second to let the listeners pick their jaws up off the floor, uh, hearing about a, a bug in an 8-bit game. It's, uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I noticed, you know, it was quite a big deal. It was quite a high-profile thing because Frankie was still at that point, still just, at, it was at the tail end of it, but there were a phenomenon, really, that hadn't quite abated yet. It was made by Ocean Software. We did a lot of really high-profile tie-ins and usually did them quite well. Yeah. And it came with, this is what I was referring to earlier, a live version of Relax on cassette, which, as far as I can work out, never been included anywhere else. I mean, well, we thought we'd go deep in the episode with Mark Griffiths where he talked about the live version of Born to Run and Disneyland, which were only on the ZTT sampler, but this is just a tape that came with a computer game. Now, I have some doubts about how live that version of Relax would have been, but I've not only been able to trace it to check up on that. Do you remember listening to that? And was it quite an illicit thing because you shouldn't have been listening to Relax at that point? Well, I'm afraid to say I didn't have a copy that had Relax on it. I got it as part of, uh, and this is something that's disappeared these days as well, a compilation of games. So there was like eight games unwieldily crammed onto four tapes, two of which would generally not work. And it was all, uh, like you say, well-regarded ocean games, and uh, especially ones by Denton Designs, who were the actual developers, Ocean being the publishers. Uh, and I just need to, to pause at this point to note that Denton Designs were also responsible for such classics as Cosmic War Toad, which only me and my family seem to have heard of, but I, I can assure you it was good. Where Time Stood Still, which was a hugely ambitious game for the time, sort of a um, six million years BC, sort of you crash in a hidden valley and there's dinosaurs everywhere. And it, it was actually really complicated and thus didn't really work on the spectrum but you know kudos for trying and et's rugby league <laughs> no, no you have made that up i haven't made it up but it's unfortunately not as hilarious as you would think it might be it's not that et uh, it's uh, australian rugby player andrew et ettinghausen now, did they get into legal trouble with this? The same way that there was a very nearly a game called Peter Shilton's Handball Maradona, where it was, yeah, it was advertised and reviewed in magazines, where basically you were a, a sort of mocked-up 8-bit Peter Shilton, and you had literally a figure handballed the ball at the goal, and you had to catch it. And then I think they then changed it to Peter Shilton's Hardball Maradona, and it... That still wasn't acceptable on the changes. Something like Peter Shilton's goal game. <laughs> but they, they, uh, given the... They were notoriously litigious about E.T. Because I know there was that... I love this. There was an old sci-fi film was repackaged as E.T.N. The extraterrestrial nasty. To catch it on the video, nasty's great. And that disappeared from the shops pretty sharpish. So ah, Now, see, I, I've heard of that. But I didn't realise that was repackaged. I thought that was something that was thrown together, uh, you know, cheaply and at the time. No, it's actually an old 60s film. It's not really that nasty. Oh, OK. So it fails on all counts, then. It's not, yeah. it's not anything to do with E.T. And it's mm. not nasty. But Ian Amblin wasn't at all bothered about that. And he just <laughs> got it withdrawn. So did that happen to E.T.'s Rugby League? I mean, I, I hope so, uh, but no, no. I've, unfortunately, I, I feel like I've misled everybody there. It, it, this should have been more interesting than it was. Uh, and for a brief second, I allowed myself to think it might be what, what we all wish it was. If anything, they should have sued them to put E.T. into the game. <laughs> 
well, I'm, I'm actually surprised looking back that there weren't more computer games around that time based on sort of pop stars and rock stars. I mean, on the top of my head, the only ones I can think of are, I've mentioned this before, but they give my regards to Broad Street game where you're Paul McCartney and you wait at tube stations for musicians to turn up so you can ask them to play on your album, which is my idea of a game, frankly. And also there was Wham! The Music Box. It wasn't really a game. It was like a really good kind of on-screen polyphonic keyboard for the Spectrum. And that was quite a big deal to have two notes playing at once on the yeah. Spectrum. I don't know how they did it, but... It was endorsed by Wham, so what it meant was it had kind of 8-bit polyphonic versions of Club Tropicana and the Edge of Heaven and so on that you could play, but you could also program your own things in. Oh, and excellent, okay. I love that, and I like to think that dear old George actually had some, not input into it, but he had some approval over it, because it was much higher quality than you expect from a teen acts tie-in things so i was gonna say it sounds like a surprisingly quality product i mean i know there was a game called altered images around the time there was a band called altered <laughs> images but i don't think that quite counts there was um there was an aerosmith shoot 'em up eventually but we're talking talking the early 90s here it was like yeah. the second wave of aerosmith uh, sort of get a grip era and there was uh, one of those um like the gun games like operation wolf that you got in the arcade uh, and i i assume the storyline had something to do with rescuing aerosmith from terrorists or Actually, from Mrs. Well, I've spaced on something here. There was Journey, the arcade game. What? In, in which there was digitised versions of Journey's uh, heads, whilst a poor version of Don't Stop Believing played in the background. I can't remember what you had to do in that game, but I, I do know it was very poorly received. I think the objective of that would be to stop playing it. <laughs> <laughs> so would you say it was a good game? I certainly spent a long time playing it. It was a bit of an enigma, really. Uh, the, the instructions, because I got the aforementioned compilation version, the instructions were even less prescriptive the ones that I, I said earlier in this piece. So part of it for me was the, the sort of the interest of working out what I was actually meant to do. And I felt like I'd done quite well at various uh, stages, but it was it was difficult to judge. It really was. Were um, the instructions written by Paul Morley? It's quite possible. I know he was active at the time. So <laughs> it's, uh... Okay, we're well, moving on to your next choice now, which is a band that I remember existing. I don't think I heard that much, but I'm fairly certain we would never have got a computer game based on this lot. <laughs> Sweet 75. I don't think many people listening will have heard of Sweet 75, but you will certainly have heard, if not heard of, someone who was in them. So, Gareth, who were Sweet 75? Sweet 75 were only the band Nirvana could have been. <laughs> um, they were formed by Chris Novoselic, former bassist from Nirvana. I'm going with Novoselic. Some people have told me it's Novoselic, but Novoselic's how I've always said it, so there we go. He did consider joining Dave Grohl in Foo Fighters, but both decided that the, the pressure on them to deliver and deliver a Nevada-style project when they actually wanted to do two separate things it would, would be too much, and I don't blame them for that. Chris formed the band. He was on guitar, bass, and accordion, <laughs> because apparently he, apparently he really loves the accordion. Um, <laughs> 
Um, they didn't have that on Polly. <laughs> Ah, oh, but they did have it on Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam on Nevada Unplugged, the Vaseline's cover. Okay, that's me told. <laughs> yeah, he formed it with a Venezuelan-born singer called Fantastic Nom de Plume here, Eva Las Vegas, which I just think is fantastic. And she impressed him when she was hired to sing at his wife's birthday party. Then that old chestnut of not being able to hold down a decent drummer re- reared its ugly head. By the time their self-titled debut album was released, and... It's not actually that bad, I should say. It sounds a bit like uh, Meat Puppets or Minutemen, so sort of things that Chris would have been influenced by in the early days of Nirvana, with sort of uh, an L7 or Alanis Morissette. And I don't, I don't mean Alanis Morissette in a bad way, as I usually do, but you know, just just, just a little hint of that in sort of vocals. But so picture that sound, and now picture it being 1997 when the album came out. A little bit behind the times. It's almost almost Yellow album again, really, in in that respect. Nirvana mania had worn off. Uh, the noise they were making wasn't current. Good enough little album, like I say. But they never did another one, and they split up in 1999. And after 1999, the next thing I can find out about them is that they split up in 2000. So I'm assuming they must have got back together in the middle, and I do know they were trying to record a second album. The Voslick then went on to form Eyes Adrift with Kirk Kirkwood from the Meat Puppets, and then played in Flipper, for whom I saw him play in 2006, and that's the only time I've ever seen Christopher Voslick play. It's a bit of a shame for me, this one, that, that it didn't really take off, because I, I, I'm a bass player myself, uh, and I was a huge Nirvana fan. Well, I am a huge Nirvana fan. I was really looking forward to Sweet 75. I was looking forward to them more than Foo Fighters, and that means I've backed the uh, Betamax of Nirvana spin-offs. Well, I think you're absolutely right about them arriving too late being a bit too behind the times. Because I remember very clearly the first thing that I knew about them was, I think it was actually, it was in the middle of 1995, at the height of Britpop. I think it was actually in the issue select that had blur on the front that said, the, we told you, as the caption, you know. So everyone's eyes were on them and Oasis and Pulp and Elastica and everyone else. One page feature on Sweet 75. It's just completely out of place, isn't it? Well, it is. And also, I'm saying this, with the best one in the world even Las Vegas is a very striking looking woman that's how we shall best put it with unusually coloured hair yeah, she didn't and- quite fit the fashion of the times I, I do remember some mentions in some less reputable music magazines kind of picking on their appearance a bit well, especially Melody Maker but I didn't even hear them on the evening session that's how ignored they were Absolutely. I didn't hear a note by them at the time. So. Yeah, and that just shows how out of time they were. Again, Eva Las Vegas's look is very now. Yeah, it was very yeah, yeah. about ten years ago. Yeah, but it wasn't 1997, so you know, it's, uh, she would have fit in a, a bit better. You know, a few years after that, kind of around the time Powerpuff Girls and that kind of thing came out, you you had more more women, particularly on the sort of alternative scene, with unusually coloured hair, with unusual fashions, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's almost like that came around on a cycle every so often, and they were just out of step with that. But uh, Christopher Voslick certainly looks uh, sharp in the uh, publicity photos with his uh, sharp suit. Well, he looks even sharper in the sharp suit now because isn't he? A- congressman or something or he's definitely into politics but i i wouldn't say i'm apolitical but i i'm less interested in that side of things particularly when it comes to entertainers like one of my my uh, favorite wrestlers a guy called kane has recently become mayor of knox county in america i don't care <laughs> i don't care i just wanted to come back and shoot fire and chokeslam people you know it's like you know so yeah no i, I all if I he know did that of... in congress that would be quite good <laughs> yes 
I think we're all we're all hoping that will happen. But yeah, no, it's kind of I do know Christopher Oslick is heavily into politics, but I couldn't tell you anything about the detail. Well, it's always going to be unfortunate when people do launch bands after a successful band, particularly when they had the kind of end of honor dip. I can think of you know for every act like Black Grape that you know were. Uh, as good as, if not, sometimes... Well, Black Grave weren't better than Happy Mondays, but sometimes a successful band will be. But you get others, like, I do know when Kinnicky split up, Emmy Kate and Marie formed a band called Rosita, who were a bit more... a little bit more hardcore, jangly than Kinnicky, and they were really good, but they were just ignored because, you know, Lauren Laverne was starting to get work on late-night TV shows by then, and they just got completely overlooked. There's a really good band in the 80s called Hipsway, who I think were mostly altered images after Claire Grogan left and they didn't really get much attention at all. Sometimes you're just forever in the shadow of your former band. I think that's a bit sad, really. Yeah, I think history has proven that the best way to, to sort of do it is to go as far away from the original genre as possible. Uh, New Order are a good example of this. They were very much in the shadow of Joy Division, but they, their sort of continuation and evolution into more of an electronic band, which Joy Division, you could argue, were doing themselves. Mm. But Within three, four years, they were unrecognisable as Joy Division, and that's really worked for them. Foo Fighters are arguably the exception to this rule, because they've been massively successful without really moving outside the genre that Nirvana were in. The other thing to note, of course, is that uh, we are talking about Foo Fighters here, not Food Fighters. Who <laughs> uh, were featured in your previous appearance. But yes. I just got to ask, I did notice that Sweet 75, the name, comes from a poem by, I think we're saying this right, Theodore Rethke. Have you ever read it? Do you know what it's about? Or Absolutely not, and absolutely not. But, you know, I, I do appreciate knowing that fact. Is oh, it about some sweets from 1975? <laughs> it's about Spangles. <laughs> uh, see, now we're going to get more hits. This is turning into a proper comedy nostalgia <laughs> podcast now. You mentioned Spangles. I'll just throw in Mojos as well. It should be all right. But, uh... Well, you know, a lot of people remember Spangles, a lot of people remember Mojos, but even I don't remember your next choice. So here's a clip of it. Excuse me. Could you give this to Johnny Be Good? Oh, he right over there. Perfect. Would you make sure that he gets this? And who should I say sent it? Mrs. Johnny Be Good. Oh, well, I heard you was in town, but I assumed you'd be white. Well, I mean, <laughs> you close. I beg your pardon? I'll get this right to Johnny. Johnny, your wife just sent this for you. <laughs> Please. Can't believe you married a sister. I mean, first off, I can't even believe you was married, but to a sister? Damn, Johnny. <laughs> Everything okay? No. Everything's fantastic. Courtney wants a divorce. Well, that'd be difficult to think of a good link or other links here, which is appropriate because, Gareth, your next choice is... Lynx. Now, is this Lynx the 80s soul bomb because people remember them? Well, no, obviously. If people remembered them, I wouldn't be talking <laughs> about it. But um, So I've taken this from IMDB because it sums it up better than I could in a, in a million years of uh, vague remembrances. Lynx is an American television series starring Stephen Williams as the owner of Lynx's Bar and Grill in Washington, D.C. and co-stars Pam Greer. Pam Greer, most known uh, recently for Jackie Brown, Ghosts of Mars and Mars Attacks. Basically, uh, if it's got Mars in, she's in it. But uh, previously, as one of the faces of exploitation cinema, she was in and was Coffee and Foxy Brown. And what this show is, is essentially an African-American version of Cheers. 
So it's about the regulars of Link's Bar and Grill, and they all have their foibles. One of them's a rich guy, and he says rich guy stuff and does rich guy stuff. But sometimes they all come together for the good of uh, the sort of the bar and the wider community and that sort of thing. When did it run from? Because I, I know it, I've been able to find out it was on Showtime. There's so little about it out there, and also if you search for it, because it's spelled L-I-N-C apostrophe S, you just get loads of stuff about Lincolnshire. It doesn't really help. When did it run from? My research shows 1998 to 2000, but I actually need to appeal to our listeners for a bit of help here because I don't remember when I watched this. And there's a very simple explanation for this. I'm not going to dwell on it, but there's been a couple of times in my life where I've been a hopeless, stinking drunkard and unemployed and sort of turned a little bit nocturnal. During both of those times, I've had cable TV and I've been watching Paramount Comedy Channel as an excuse not to go to sleep or think about things. Now... I think this is a proper 3am to 5am job on Paramount, a bit like when I caught Gary Shandling's show. Except Gary Shandling's show is actually quite good, and I quite enjoyed that. So what I'm wondering is, can anybody tell me whether this was on Paramount Comedy Channel sometime between, I would say, about 99 and 2001, or was it between about 2006 and 2007? Well, I can't really help you there at all, I'll be honest about that. I don't remember this. I mean, and I used to watch all kinds of small hours in the morning, dreadful American sitcoms. I mean, I remember being addicted to Nikki, which nobody remembers now, which is uh, Nikki Cox. Was she a wrestler or a husband a wrestler or both? I can't remember. Quite possibly, actually, yeah. yeah. Uh, there was Grace Under Fire. Grace Under Fire, yeah. And News Radio, but we should make an exception for News Radio because that was actually brilliant. Yeah, but Lynx has just almost disappeared off the face of the map. And, you know, that was around the time when, before people sort of got on the, the HBO bandwagon, where they have to try and be the first to like a new drama series that comes out, regardless of whether it's any good or not. Before that, people did do that with sitcoms. I remember people saying, oh, have you seen Sister, Sister? I'm like, yeah, it's not that good. <laughs> I think it's for, like, 11-year-olds. I'm like, no, it's really funny. And like, yeah, no, I think I, think I might watch Father Ted, you know. <laughs> but I don't remember remember anyone bigging up links like you say it might have been on over here a lot later than it was purportedly in america that's what i'm thinking it feels it feels like it was the 2006 2007 and when you think about it i don't think it would have come over given that it only ran for two seasons in america i don't think it would have come over that quickly and particularly not if it was being lobbed on in the middle of the night so why, why would you pay for a you know a, a first run show and then then throw it on then but, you know, like I say, my remembrances are hazy for a number of reasons. So if anybody is able to help us out with this one, that'd be fantastic. I also just need to mention the absolute highlight of my staying up too late uh, viewing, which was, and this is the second time I've mentioned this on the on, uh, this very podcast, it was the Powerpuff Girls, but with signing for the deaf. Because, <laughs> because the, simply because, and this is, this is horrible and crass, and I apologise to everybody, but the lady that did the signing was fit. And now I would be happy if we could draw down the curtain on this unfortunate period of my life. Well, I was going to change that completely and ask one thing that's not been evident at all from anything you've said. And again, I'm asking about one of your choices. Was Lynx actually any good or not? It's so difficult for me to say. It was at least diverting. You know, it wasn't, you know, it would come on, I would watch it, I would give it the time of day. I, I don't think I ever turned it off except to fall asleep. So that's the nearest I can come to a, uh, a mark of quality. To be honest, it's probably on YouTube or something like that. I should check it out. But I'd have to do the whole thing, so I'd have to wait until 4.30 in the morning to actually watch it. And these days, I'm just asleep, to be honest. You have to get someone to sign the Powerpuff Girls for you as well. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to get someone really small to stand in the corner of my television screen. And uh, yeah, This is going to be more difficult than I thought. Maybe I just won't bother. Well, I've got one that... 
again, I can't find any trace of this, and I don't really know when anyone remembers it. It was an American. It was set in a bar. I think I probably saw this sometime in the early 90s, possibly on Channel 4's Late License, which is a short-lived thing where they got comics to link all kinds of programs they couldn't show at any other time of the day because they were so rubbish you know i think smashing nicely did it one week joe brand julian clary people like that i think it was part of that but it was called something like up all night or out all night they had this kind of hip zany mostly black american cast and simon o'brien oh (laughs) which i I couldn't quite figure out what he was doing there how he got there i remember (laughs) being not that bad actually but that that mystified me so much it was right up there with as i mentioned here before when barnaby appears in the opening titles once upon a time man it's that kind of incongruity thinking i know that and i know that as disparate things how are they combined For a second there, when you were uh, when you were describing the show, I thought it was going to turn out to be Lynx. <laughs> Wouldn't that be brilliant if I accidentally remembered Lynx? <laughs> okay, well, we're on the subject of Lynx. I'm going to use the same joke again, because here's my next link. Now, this is a toy line that we've mentioned quite a lot on previous editions of this for various reasons. I didn't know it had gone on this long. And when you describe your next choice, I think we're going to find out why I didn't know it had gone on this long. Anyway, here's an advert for them. Will give up the power to transform to become stronger, faster, more alive. I will count me in. So action masters are born. Transformer action masters are incredibly detailed action figures. Action masters, master is alive, alive. Action masters, but the evil Decepticons steal the power and become action masters too. Led by Megatron and Starscream, they battle Optimus Prime, Jazz, and Bumblebee like you've never seen them battle before. Action Masters ride into battle in sleek transforming vehicles and fight alongside vicious transforming animals and battle droids. Get in on the action. Right, well, from 1990, that's an advert for Transformers Action Masters. Like I say, no recollection of these at all. Gareth, what were they? Tim, I present to you Transformers Action Masters. Transformers that don't transform. So, robot not in disguise then. So, the entire. No. Unless they wore one of those sort of glasses and fake moustache things. <laughs> so, the whole point of Transformers is out of the window with these. Exactly, exactly. Now, there's a wonderful documentary series called The Toys That Made Us uh, on Netflix. And you should really watch their episode. I know Tim has, but uh, out, out there, you guys, you should really watch the episode on Transformers because it's absolutely brilliant. And, you know. It sums up a lot of stuff, but it doesn't, I believe, mention Action Masters at any stage. And there's, there's probably a few good reasons for this. So probably worth stating that um, the bulk of Transformers continuity, we're going right down the fan rabbit hole here, so I do, do apologise, but it's from Marvel Comics. And quite often, it's from the UK arm of Marvel Comics rather than the US arm. In the UK, Transformers comic ran for over 200 episodes. I'm going to say somewhere around 250, probably a little less than that. In America, I think it only got to about issue 90. So the UK wing was having to write stories to pad out the time between when it was receiving the stories from the US. So that meant that there was a lot more innovation in terms of characters and setting and that kind of thing coming on at that time. So this was right towards the end of the comic. And Action Masters were introduced as the result of Grimlock, who's the uh, Dinobot Tyrannosaurus, and probably, in that case, the coolest Transformer, because he's a robot Tyrannosaurus. 
for crying out loud. He uh, tests a new fuel called Nucleon. Transformers, as we all know, are usually uh, powered by Energon. But he receives a dire warning from all these uh, robots that uh, Nucleon has turned into zombies. So it makes Grimlock and later users such as Optimus Prime, in fact, far more powerful in robot form to the uh, extent that they can basically just kill any other Transformer, but remove their ability to transform. So shouldn't they just be called Action Masters? Quite possibly, yeah, because they're not Transformers anymore. It's, it's worth noting that there is actually a slight advantage to making non-transforming toys. And the advantage there is that they could look more like the comic and cartoon versions. Because they're not having to worry about them functionally folding down into a, a camera or a microscope or something like that. They can actually look like the robots as animated. So this is interesting because this is, I think, around the same time that obviously Masters of the Universe was well on the way out by then. But they tried that relaunch. It was like, I can never remember the name. It was something like Yeoldy He-Man with three ends of the day or something where he became a kind of a slimmer sort of ravaged battle warrior from the middle ages and Skeletor was basically an actual skeleton with big boogly eyes yeah yeah and you know that didn't fool anyone but what was his quest for authenticity in flagging toy lines you know did they did they make boglins look more like actual boglins <laughs> it's i guess it's a misstep that everyone was making at the time was it in trying to make these characters more believable or realistic and that's not what the audience really wanted what was happening was the original audience for transformers and master of the universe were growing up and getting into booze and girls and sweet 75 and so on and so forth you know so they were just never going to recapture that what they would have been better off doing is doing more of what they'd already done and marketing it to the next generation of people who might might pick it up but then it is very important for in sort of children's trends to keep things as fresh as possible so the way that they eventually did it was to stop making Transformers and then wait until the people who had got into Booze and Girls and Sweet 75 had come out the other side into sort of adults who had income and wanted their old Transformers back and then market the original versions back to them at a hugely inflated price. And that's why things like Transformers and He-Man are now still popular, but in pretty much entirely with an adult audience. Yeah, I'm now having nightmares about uh, robo-machines that don't transform, and nobody <laughs> wants that. But you say, you know, it was inspired by a comic storyline. I mean, was it at all worthwhile? Because it's kind of calling to mind that ludicrous interlude in Heroes where they all lost their powers. And, you know, when you do that, you've got, you've got what? A cheerleader who can suddenly get injured. You've got, you know, a pretty blonde woman who can't punch her way through doors anymore. You've got Peter and Sila just being dull and angsty, like, you know, oh, no, we can't battle each other with big blasts of energy anymore. Let's just mope a bit. And, and sorry, what use is Hero Nakamura without his powers? Absolutely. It's <laughs> At all. And, and what good is a Grimlock that cannot be a robot Tyrannosaurus, which, as I've already mentioned, is the whole point of Grimlock in the so first place. So they took existing Transformers and stopped them transforming. Yes. They now, didn't They didn't touch Jazz, did they? That was the very next name I was going to mention. And the reason I was going to mention that is actually another, another thing that they were lauded for at the time was they were making characters that were no longer available, available again, but as Action Masters. If you didn't have a toy of Jazz, you could now get a toy of Jazz. But why on earth would you want a toy of Jazz that is just a robot that looks like it might turn into a car that doesn't turn into a car 
because Jazz was one of the best cars. The, the original Autobot cars were absolutely fantastic. Still probably, I'd say, in my top three toy lines ever. You had, you had Mirage, who was the 1977 Ligier Formula One car. You had Jazz, who I think was a Porsche of some kind, but it was a, a rally Porsche. It was Martini Racing branded. And uh, Ratchet, of course, the ambulance. Wheeljack, who was a, a rally Lancia. So it was, you know, really, really sort of faithful recreations of motorsporting vehicles. I was well into motorsport at the time, I still am, and they turned into fantastic robots that could shoot each other with their guns. And without that, say Transformers had just started as action masters, they wouldn't be remembered at all. They'd be robo-machine. It's... Well, was there any action to them at all? Should they have been called inaction masters if they didn't really do anything? <laughs> I mean, that is the other thing. I, I think they were um, articulated. So they were more like action figures, to be fair. More like, a, say, a G.I. Joe or an A-Team uh, action figure. But, yeah, just, I, I don't see the point. I honestly do not. So they've not appeared in the films, have they? They've not been reissued? No, no, but I suppose you could say, since it was, since it was reused characters, those characters have appeared <laughs> in the films. It's worth noting that we're at the very, very end of the, the original toy line here, so every idea had been, had been done that they could think of. We'd had triple changers, we'd had combiners, and we'd had something that was previously the most pointless Transformers before Action Masters, which, I don't know if you remember these, they were called Pretenders. Isn't Rob- that Chrissy Hind? Oh, God, I hope not. But um, <laughs> you, you would have a robot that clipped into a shell and that shell was human shaped or I had one that was wolf shaped I remember that much so they were meant to blend in with uh, local wildlife but of course the trouble is the toys were massive so suddenly you had a human that was bigger than some of your Transformers which is obviously not a problem that the comics or the the cartoon had because they just used a I think it was a molecular displacement sort of thing. Of course. To explain why Megatron was able to shrink down into a gun that Shockwave could use. It's a... Sorry, Soundwave. God almighty, I'm a bad fan. <laughs> so it was the same scale as me. I, I was never that keen on Sabutio. I always liked the fact that, you know, the World Cup and the FA Cup were about 18 times the size of yeah. the players. They're celebrating, they fall in. I always wanted that to happen, really. Now that's a cup worth winning. There was also the, the throw-in and corner-kick players that were yes. the, yeah. uh, kind of giants amongst men. <laughs> I've always wondered what the most like pointless Sabutio figure was because weren't there some spectators you could get? They were, like yeah. geezers with flat caps and scarves and a dog as well. Yeah, yeah, and unpainted as well. So if you if you wanted to make it authentic, you had to sit there painting. <laughs> the Easter Island. <laughs> <laughs> There's also I did once try to consider what would be the least likely action figure tie-in you could ever get, and I think it would be Richard Stilgo. <laughs> no, it, it has features. It has. You know, there'd be a thing in the box saying, press this button and you'll get a topical witty epithet. You know, and it, would, it would do sort of satirical takes on the week's news. Yeah, there, there was the uh, uh, incredibly unpopular Ross Mayer line of uh, action figures. Really? Do... No, no. Oh. <laughs> gotcha. I was going to go out and go on eBay, certainly eBay and get a Raven Delacroix action figure and nobody asked why. Okay, well, I think we should move on to your next choice, which is a little bit more wholesome relatively speaking it's actually a series of books but i'm using a clip from a computer game here because there's absolutely nothing to represent the books out there okay well that not at all patronizing bit of computer game music was from way of the tiger on the zx spectrum which is a game that 
I played a lot, despite not really liking that much. But we'll come back to that in a minute. But Gareth, we're actually talking about the way the Tiger books here, aren't we? Absolutely. So there was a, a series of ninja-themed choose-your-own-adventure books called The Way of the Tiger. They were written by Mark Smith and Jamie Thompson. They were set in the fantasy world of Orb, which was also used in a fighting fantasy game book. Now, I'm sure we're more likely to remember fighting fantasy because that was the uh, choose-your-own-adventure book series that actually kind of took off and, you know, people always remember your, your warlocks of Firetop Mountain and, you know... Uh, and Scorpion whatnot. Swamp. <laughs> but if you ever played Talisman of Death in the uh, fighting fantasy ones, that was set in Orb and included some of the same characters as Way of the Tiger. So there were six books originally. There are now eight books because Kickstarter. And every book had a one-word title with an exclamation mark to make it super exciting. And I'm going to list them now in suitably dynamic fashion. Avenger! Assassin! Usurper! Overlord, Warbringer, and Inferno. And more recently, the prequel Ninja, which was a bit lazy, uh, and the final sequel, Redeemer. So they didn't get as far as Croupier and Lord Mayor's Croupier then? <laughs> Unfortunately not, no. We can only uh, speculate what might have happened in that one. But I did notice it. So I didn't have any of these books, because like, I had the computer game, but I've read that they had a warning at the start saying not to do any of the ninja moves contained therein, because it could be dangerous. Yeah, it did. That's part of the complication of this ga- these game books. I think that's why I didn't catch on in quite the same way as Fighting Fantasy, because that was a relatively simple gameplay system. I'm not going to say it was massively simple. You know, you still had to have your pen and your paper and your dice and whatnot but way of the tiger had all sorts of moving parts like uh, different types of punch and kick and throw that you could do in combat and i think those are the things that you were warned not to not to emulate you'd learn new ones as time went on and, and the storyline actually went through all of the books so if you learned something in avenger you could still use it in redeemer this all sounds a little too complicated did you actually enjoy these or did you enjoy having them more than actually inverted commas playing them i i did really enjoy them but there was a slight problem which is that i actually stopped playing the books really early on because i would got avenger and assassin but i couldn't find usurper for about a year and a half so just my interest waned by the time i finally did find it i just decided to pass on the whole thing i was uh well i wasn't quite into booze and sweet 75 at that stage but i'd, I'd certainly moved i was probably uh Probably looking at action masters at that stage, to be honest. Um, so uh, yeah, unfortunately, it didn't didn't work that well for me. It, it, however, I do want to say that um, the title of the book "Usurper" is why I know what the word "usurper" means, which is much like the use of the word "id" in uh, Bart the Genius. And I, much like you, had a copy of the Spectrum game, but I think our recollections of them are going to be quite uh, quite different. Yeah, well, I mean, I have tried to figure out why there was suddenly. A kind of martial arts boom in the mid '80s. It can't just be related to computer games, but there was kind of, it was a new wave. Of it. Like there was suddenly a new wave of what I can only describe as Vietnam War mania, which you know I wasn't quite as on board with. But I do remember people get suddenly getting very excited from nowhere about martial arts. I think it might have been due to you know video shops and films like No Retreat, No Surrender, and Kickboxer exclamation <laughs> mark, um, you know that sort of thing. But there were definitely lots of computer games, but I remember being quite excited about Way of the Tiger because it looked quite high concept and ninjas were quite in at that point for some reason. I'm not sure why, but when I played it, it just seemed to be like a souped-up Yi-Yi Kung Fu mm. with less entertaining visuals and more complicated rules. Now you're going to tell me that it was absolutely brilliant, aren't you? No, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the other outcome of speaking about any Spectrum game, which is uh, my copy of it didn't work. <laughs> 
so I've actually never played it. Despite despite only despite it being one of the first eight Spectrum games that I owned because it came when I bought mm. the machine, I have never played Way of the Tiger because it has never worked. Can I take a guess? Because I mean, I had so many Spectrum games all blend into one. I'm going to take a guess about it not working. It was one of the speed loaders where the tone of the loading thing changed on the second block of loading where it went something I won't do it repeatedly, but it was all on that pitch. Did you get about two minutes into that, and then suddenly it went back to the copyright 1982 Sinclair Research Limited while the tape kept playing normally with no problem? Got it in one, Tim. That's, <laughs> that's, you know, that was the story of my childhood, essentially, was, was wonderfully put together 8-bit screens dissolving into... Mm. Well, actually, for me, it was copyright 1986 Amstrad, because I had a, a plus two, which I believe is the first... Spectrum. Oh God, I haven't researched this properly. Someone's going to absolutely tear me apart for this. But I'm going to I'm going to stake my knowledge on it being the first model of Spectrum that Amstrad marketed. Oh God, Alan Sugar's going to bloody tweet us now when this goes out. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying lowercase letters. I am listening, Specticus. <laughs> well, at least he's not uh, our Prime Minister, eh? <laughs> But I seem to remember it being quite an expensive game, so I'm quite shocked, you know, that it didn't work and that was that. But that was how you regarded it then. It was kind of just, oh, it's not working. Yeah, there didn't seem to be any point in getting another copy of it because it was likely to be something with the, the tape deck. And the tape deck on the Plus 2 was inbuilt. So it's mm. not even like I could swap it out for another one. So I've got some theories on, on why there might have been a resurgence of uh, sort of kung fu and, and ninja imagery. And it does actually come down to video games. Without wishing to be too stereotypical, a lot of the video games and arcade games that were coming out were from Japan, where obviously the, the ninja, I was going to say myth, but it does seem to be part of history. You know, we can't exactly call it a myth. Ninja legend, I suppose, came from. You'd have uh, games like uh, Legend of Cage and uh, Shinobi that were heavily sort of ninja influenced. A lot of beat-em-up games coming out as well things like uh, Renegade and Double Dragon which had the fighting aspect of it and would generally have at least one sort of oriental character with martial arts kind of mastery and I, th- I think that could be a reason why it was starting to creep back in at that stage because like you say cinema doesn't really reflect that at the time that would have been more the late 70s with uh, sort of Bruce Lee and the, the Hong Kong cinema sort of boom at that stage. I must just ask at this point, because uh, I keep hoping somebody bring this up at one point. Have you ever seen Men of the Dragon? No, I haven't. Which was a, a pilot for an American Kung Fu-based series that's never made about an American brother and sister who'd learnt Kung Fu and come back to fight crime in mainland America. And they, they take on some white slave traders. It's out so over the top, it's brilliant. So is that like uh, the A-Team with karate then? Basically, I think it's from about 1974. So and a bit earlier then. There's all kinds of, there's endless sequences as they arrive somewhere and somebody in a full karate outfit advances on them menacingly and they trade a couple of, hi, 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 and then embrace each other and go like, Master Lang too, it has been so long. <laughs> so, Master Hank, it is wonderful to see you. <laughs> All of the cliches you can imagine from a martial arts film in one pilot. Why did it make a series? It's beyond me. That sounds uh, like no more stupid than the kind of thing that gets kickstarted. Like two extra Way of the Tiger books, really. So <laughs> I, I think if we put a kickstarter together for Men of the Dragon, then, yeah. you know, we, we might get somewhere. Who would you cast in it, though? I think they'll all be past it in terms of sparring now. So. True, true. Um... Well, I don't know. Uh, the guy who plays Phil Mitchell looks handy in a fight. I'm sure, I'm sure he could do some ninja moves. <laughs> they, were, they, they were not 
no, no disrespect to Steve McFadden. They're the kind of young, glamorous types in it. <laughs> I think we should move on to your last choice. Okay, well, I'm just astonished that nobody has chosen this so far. It's been mentioned in a couple of shows, and really, it's near the top of most people's list of things that they remember that they just get blank looks about. Here's the advert, as I've talked about many times before. See if you remember it. voice saying Quattro in an exaggerated way gives away what this is. Gareth, Quattro, the carbonated drink, tell us all about it. Okay, I'll tell you what I can, because this is another one much like Lynx, where there's really not that much out there about it. So it, we, Just you wait. We will be going back to my uh, 80s remembrances at some stage. But uh, it's a canned soft drink produced between 1982 and 1986 by the Coca-Cola Company. Its name is believed to be derived from the four fruit flavours used in its creation, Pineapple, grapefruit, passion fruit, and orange. It was green, it was nice, it was a bit like Lilt, which makes sense as it shares two ingredients with it, and it has a television advert which, much as was the fashion at the time, appears to be set in a dystopian future of some sort, (laughs) and contains the kind of computer animation and cyberpunk aesthetic that looked impossibly futuristic back then, and incredibly archaic now. Well, yeah, and it's interesting to bring that up, because one of the things that I do know about it, which doesn't need to be mentioned anywhere, was the adverts were masterminded by Annabelle Jankel and Rocky Morton, who were the people behind Max Headroom. Makes perfect sense when you think about it. And the the other thing about it is, that jingle was done by a band who nobody remembers. I mean, I don't even remember them called Intafaron. I think that's how it's pronounced. But the only reason I know about them was their videos were constantly plugged on, can you guess what? No, the Max Headroom Show. That was the only place I ever saw them. Now, there's a surprise. They've worked on this ad campaign with the people who do this music video show, and they're never off it. That's a massive surprise, isn't it? But... uh... (laughs) Yeah, I should have thought that. I was thinking the chart show, but uh, I don't know whether the chart show would have been around at that time. Well, certainly Max Hedjoon's Merry Christmas Santa Claus was on the chart show. Do you actually remember drinking Quattro? I just remember it existing. Yeah, I really liked it, actually. um, I was a bit annoyed when I couldn't get it anymore. It's uh, it's the sizzling bacon monster munch of of drinks in that respect. Um, Yeah, like I say... I basically saw it as a an alternative to fruit flavored drinks like Lilt uh, that had a little bit of sour in there as well. I, mm. I like that as a flavor profile. Another one that I really liked was Tab Clear, but I seem to be literally the only person. No, I loved Tab Clear, and I was oh, excellent. I was once made up, and a year after they'd taken it off the market, I found some in a discount store. Oh, brilliant! Uh, so I managed to get a, you could call it an aftertaste of it. <laughs> But I think one of the reasons, I mean, because Quattro was so heavily plugged, like, you know, and with these really expensive, really futuristic adverts, I think part of the reason it didn't take off was it was unusual enough full stop to get fizzy drinks at that point. They weren't, they just generally weren't as available, and there were more concerns. Well, I mean, there are still concerns now about their health issues, because you never get Jamie bloody Oliver shutting up about what he thinks everyone who isn't him should do. But people were a bit more kind of cautious about that will rot your teeth and there wasn't really the diet options and mm. people were a bit more concerned about obesity and it was a treat when you got a fizzy drink and it was rare enough to get coke or pepsi i mean you hardly it was quite a thing if you saw somebody would seven up because it wasn't that common 
And I know I remember seeing a documentary about when they relaunched Tango in the early 90s. One of the brand managers worked on it said before that it had just been something that basically you would have seen in chip shops. We didn't really promote it very heavily because there wasn't a market. But there wasn't a market and they tried to bring in this high concept new drink and it didn't take off. It's not that surprising really, is it? No, and I think it was possibly from the imagery aimed at a more mature audience than than simply children. Around the time there were such drinks as uh, Citrus Spring which were attempting to be a sort of a I guess, and this this is rank generalisation here, but almost like a middle middle aged middle class sort of uh, drink. You could believe that it was alright for you because it had real fruit juice in and a, mm. a sort of a a sort of a beatific font, you know. It wasn't wasn't threatening you with cyberpunk. Or and was like endorsed that. by Phil Cool as well. It was indeed, yeah. <laughs> as as we know, it's funny you say that. I didn't really think about that, but yeah, Seven Up was never never around that much until the sort of Fido Dido years, um, and that was a, a spokes model that was used in America and came over to Britain quite a way afterwards because I, I I either had or had seen some Seven Up merchandise from America in sort of the early to, to mid eighties that had that character on. Or I think I did. Maybe I'm maybe I'm getting me. Uh, no, I remember. I remember seeing the badges and things before the actual adverts with him in the period, and yeah, not yeah. quite understanding what Fido Dido was. I still don't know what Fido Dido was or why it was, but that's by the by. But you're right about the adverts for Quattro because I think. A lot of kids probably would have found it quite frightening because, like you say, they were quite dystopian. There was the that sort of post Kajagoogoo new romantic, basically attacking a vending machine, and getting a can of Quattro. And in my head, it's of a piece with the Lee Cooper jeans. Don't be a dummy up there. Where it had all these zombie punks with Lee Cooper jeans walking through a dystopian landscape while Gary Newman sang, "Don't be a dummy, give us your money." Yeah. And a little bit like the Apple advert as well, with the uh, the big face on the screen. That was Apple, wasn't it? I'm, I'm thinking of the right one here. Yes. Somebody yes. smashes the screen, and it's. <laughs> Did I dream this? No, no, I'm, I'm sure it. I'm sure. It's and there were also what was the name of the the underground tribe of sort of punks in Marvel comics around that time who oh. I think Spider Man fought them and the X Men did as well, but they were forever like kidnapping children to eat (laughs) so kids were going to be scared of dystopia you know it's not really a way to launch your drink is it and the combination presents slags as well that do you know what the quattro advert i'm convinced that slags was partly based on that it's quite possible it's quite possible it was inescapable at the time i remember that much so i've got a question for you here tim now Mm -hmm. we are um we are discussing a foodstuff or drink that you can't get anymore now but all the way back in episode two, we discussed Sizzling Bacon Monster Munch. We did. We came to the conclusion that uh, all-round arsehole Piers Morgan was somehow responsible for the withdrawal of Sizzling Bacon Monster Munch. So my question to you is, who should we blame for the fact that we can't get our hands on a tin of Quattro anymore? We're really quite spoiled for choice at the moment, <laughs> aren't we? Tempted to say I'm in Jones, but... <laughs> Well, I was wondering if your if your uh, good friend Morrissey might be uh, responsible somehow. Do you know what he bloody is? If the timing fits, you know, eighty six it disappears. You know, that's when the Smiths were starting to dissolve. Morrissey, give us our bloody quattro back. <laughs> <laughs> what what would Johnny Marr's subsequent drink of choice have been? Oh, it must have been Citrus Spring by uh, <laughs> by process of elimination. Uh, in fact, can you not see electronic? 
endorsing citrus spring i really can <laughs> it both makes me want a new electronic album and some citrus spring particularly about phil cool on the record they could finish that cover of colors by donovan they weren't allowed to release for rights reasons just get phil cool in to sing that they, Although he can't do it as the character he normally sang as, so I'm not going any further into that. Gareth, apart from bringing Morrissey into it, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Tim, it's been fantastic. Higher Than The Sun by Tim Worthington. The story of Bloodless by My Bloody Valentine, Foxface Alpha by Saint Etienne, Screamer Delicate by Primal Scream, Bandwagoness by Teenage Fan Club, and how Creation Records took on the world and nearly won. Find out more at timworthington.org. <laughs>